Next Chapter Podcast. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This sounds like something from every 50s movie ever. All of my love, all of my kissing, you don't know what you've been missing, oh boy. Oh boy, come ski but do oh boy, oh boy, that ski but true that you were called, oh boy. This is a classic. This is probably one of the most iconic songs and album that we have done so far on the 500. It's called Oh Boy. It's by Buddy Holly and the Crickets off their 1957 album, The Chirping Crickets. It's also number 420, bro. It's 420. On the Spotify Ridge, The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, you can doogly spooglies? Fleece Army. You know what's cool about joining and following along in the path that Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums has laid out for us is that occasionally we get a record that never was in our lives before, but we knew about it, we had heard about it, we knew that it was important to music, yet we just didn't know why. And then, wang, Zuki, that shit hits, and you're like, yeah, dude, BH for life. I'm all about Buddy Holly. I got the, the the glasses on. I got my hair cut. Keeping the goatee, though. I'm going to keep it until this uh, this quar ends. Dorona. When Dorona ends, the goatee goes. Unless you guys think that I should get rid of it. Do you think I should get rid of it? Let me know. Send me a message at my Instagram, at Josh Adam Myers, or on Twitter, at Josh Adam Myers. Show us how you're listening to The 500, everybody. Do the Instagram stories. I want you guys to take a screenshot of how you're listening to The 500. Post it on your Instagram stories or on your Twitter or on your Facebook, whatever it is. Tag me at Josh Adam Myers and tag The 500 Podcast on all social. So like I said, I mean, we had a Wang Zuki this week, everybody. And I got a Wang Zuki of a guest. First, before I even introduce who the guest is, me and my producer, Jeremiah, have known each other since middle school and in college we really connected over the HBO sketch series Mr. Show with Bob and David and if any of you are fans of that show then you know just it's like a cult following and today we have our third cast member from Mr. Show with Bob and David the one and only Tom Kenny not only is Tom from Mr. Show with Bob and David, but he's also the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. And if you don't know who SpongeBob SquarePants is, then you are never on worldstarhiphop.com on Instagram and seeing the memes because it's everywhere. 
He's also been on Rocco's Modern Life, Adventure Time, The Powerpuff Girls, Johnny Bravo, Cat Dog. I can go on and on and on. This dude also is a rock and roll fan, but most importantly, he's a fan of Buddy Holly. Raid review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 420 out of 500 with the Chirping Crickets. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. A talking buddy Holly with Tom Kenny. Professor LSD trails. Well, I don't know what rhymes with that, so I'll say snails. That made me so happy. <laughs> that made me <laughs> happy. That's gonna be my Eric play on music. Made me so happy. <laughs> so, so we, so we were talking about getting you on, and we wanted to get you on from some other stuff, and stuff just didn't work out. But then, when the crickets came up, you immediately jumped on this. So, I did. Tell me, like, when did you? So, why did? So, why did you pick this? Like, when did you first hear Buddy Holly in the crickets? Well, you know, I, um, in the seventies, when I was a kid. I was born in 62. There was this big 50s nostalgia thing that happened, you know, with American graffiti and, uh, you know, happy oh, yeah. days and all. There was, there, was, there was kind of a big 50s revival that happened. And most of those guys, uh, uh, not Buddy Holly, but most of those guys were still alive, you know. Uh, uh, you know, Bo Dilley was still around. Uh, you know, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, all those architects of rock and roll were still around, um, or a lot of them were. And... So they were kind of around, and you'd see them on the Mike Douglas show, you know? And then the Buddy Holly story with Gary Busey came out and I think, 1978. So I was in high school, 16 years old, and I was big into listening to oldies radio. I love the oldies radio, and um, I just loved that era of music because it excited me. Like, I was this hyperactive kid, and the stuff that I was hearing then was kind of soporific, you know? A lot of singer-songwriter stuff. and Like what? You know, what do you call crap back then? Well, I still call it crap what, now, what you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but... What do you, you know, call my sister, it? Like, some people, you know, like I had a sister who listened to Yes and Joni Mitchell, you know what I mean? I had an older brother who Long I shared... Right. Sorry, I love that song. Exactly. Now, <laughs> that, that, suddenly we both turned into hacky stand-ups. You know, what is it with yes? Mountains yeah. come out of the sky Do and they stand there. Do you need an organ there. to go in a complete circle? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, and, I, and my, I had an older brother who, you know, liked, uh, you know, he listened to Uriah Heep, and he listened to some cool stuff like Alice Cooper and stuff like that, but I, I kind of fell into the whole oldies thing and punk rock thing and all that and like we were talking a little bit before we went on i would listen to the oldies radio as a kid in the 70s and go i wish there was new music now that gave me that kind of adrenaline rush that just makes you want to not jump around and dance and then bam 1976 
you know, my friend's hip older sister comes back from New York City with a bunch of LPs. Like, hey, there's this new band called the Ramones. They just put out the first album. You know, here's wow. the, the the Dead Boys. You know, there's this whole thing happening. It's this place CBGB's in in New York City. And so me and my friends, including Bobcat Goldthwaite, uh, listened to this stuff, and we we're like, wow, this is actually music we can play. Like. You know, you're never yeah. going to be, yeah, for, you know, 15, 16 year old kids are never going to be able to like plug in guitars and play a Boston song. It's more than a feeling. Yeah, you can't, you can't play Star, you can't play Stairway to Heaven unless you practice. Punk rock Ugh. is just the most simple power chords and it just, it's, it's, has more energy than some of the best rock and roll I've ever listened to in my life. And I used to try to like that stuff, you know, and it's like, I guess it's what's around. It's what you're supposed to like, you know, so you'd buy the Kansas album or the Sticks album and just go, I can't, this, I'm pretty <laughs> sure this blows. Everybody else seems to like it, but I'm pretty sure this blows. Uh, How and, does, you can't, wait, wait, hold on a second, hold on a second. Tell, you're telling me, you're my lady, that blows? Of the morning. Yeah, that does not blow. It's cheesy as fuck, but it does not blow. Well, what, it one gets thing I, the blowing. One thing I learned <laughs> is that SpongeBob can sing any Sticks song and not have to change the key. Hit me. Give me one. Just give, <laughs> go ahead. Please give me one. Babe, I'm leaving. Must be on my <laughs> way. Wait, is that Dennis DeLong in here? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a... Yeah, so so long story short, I you know, all that... It was kind of a perfect storm where, you know, there, there was a lot of old stuff getting played and then, then there was new stuff getting played and you'd see little Richard on the Mike Douglas show and just go, what the heck is that, you know? Like yeah. like all these guys, yeah. all these freaks like Sly Stone and Little Richard were on these shows that your mom would watch during the day, you know, like the Mike Douglas show and the, you know, uh, Merv Griffin and stuff like that, you know. And it was it was kind of a wacky time when you think about it, like all that stuff that was on the on TV in the 70s. Like there was this crazy mashup, like everything. I think that was the last gasp of things not being so formatted and so regimented, like even the radio, even the AM radio. You know, when I was a kid yeah. in the 70s, there'd be a country, you know, you'd hear a Johnny Paycheck song, like a cool country outlaw song, and then there'd be some singer-songwriter thing, and then there'd be like some one-hit wonder and something really garagey, and then some dumb Mr. Jaws uh, novelty record or something. And it was like, yeah, it was kind of rad, you know, you're just like, wow. And then that that kind of ended uh, at, at a certain point where everything was just, you know, formatted in... in regimented and it became, I it heard, became corporate. you know when i started listening to a lot of like punk rock especially the new york punk rock uh i immediately saw that like wow these guys i could hear that these guys love girl groups you know joey ramon loves the ronettes they see like he sings just like ronnie yeah. Spector. you know this is amazing and so he's uh, 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 uh. you know it's like wow that's ronnie Spector. you know and i've never I did all that. thought about that that's insane yeah, I've never thought I've never thought about that. And it was cool, you know, because you meet a, you know, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Bobcat was obviously my friend that I knew, you know, we met when we were six years old, and we were just fanatics for the Kinks and the Who and 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 then the punk rock uh, Ramones and all that stuff. Big time, we played, you know, we played in bands and stuff together, playing all that stuff. And then I joined a band called the Tearjerkers in Syracuse. And we would do like punked up versions of Buddy Holly songs. You know, we did Not Fade Away. We did um, You're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care. You don't like crazy music. You don't like rocking bands. And uh, we, we just did all that stuff. Uh, Not Fade Away we did. And I think 
even, you know, even though it was the 70s, I feel like Buddy Holly hit me the same way that he must have hit people hard in the 50s, you know, not, you know, just regular fans and also people like Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson and uh, Mick Jagger, people like that. I mean, Not Fade Away was the Rolling Stones' first U.S. single, you know, that a cover of Buddy Howie's Not Fade yeah. Away yeah. was the first I, 45, I, the Rolling I Stones. No I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first record they put out. So that kind of... um. I just loved him. And I was also a skinny kid that wore glasses. Here's a skinny kid that wore glasses. People were always telling me I looked like Buddy Holly. And then, you know, the, I loved the movie. And then I had my parents get me the book for Christmas, that the Buddy Holly story. And then I realized that the movie was mostly BS fiction, which was kind of a letdown. But it's like, okay, that's Hollywood, I guess. But I, I still liked it. And, you know, Buddy Holly, was, it's just one of these things. There's certain artists that are the bomb b-a-l-m and the bomb b-o-m-b that get you through your whole life i mean you know people like buddy holly muddy waters howlin wolf bob wills the ramones you know beach boys brian wilson there's just certain stuff that i've been listening to nearly my whole life and it still makes me feel better you know when you're having a horrible day or something just kicks your but eight ways to Sunday, which, as we know, show business uh, 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 does that. You know, rejection is rejection is where we live. You know, it's like we just go out and audition for stuff we don't get every freaking day. You know, you know, you know, you know what Hollywood's like. You ever seen History of the World Part One when Madeline Kahn's choosing the penis and she's like, no, 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 yes, no, 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 no. I'm like. Why am I a no all the time? I want to be a yes. Come on. But that's I think that's what's so special about some of these these bands and artists that we grew up with is that when I put the Beatles on, I always feel good. It's music. Dude, that is why the quarantine has not been bothering me because for the last three weeks, I've been... I've been balls deep in the girl groups, just like, I mean, listening to the, the, the happiest, most positive, most loving, you know, powerful music that some women have ever put out. Some artists, not just women. It's just fantastic. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, those girl group records are like just beautiful architectural edifices, you know, where you go, wow, Spectre, I don't quite know how Spectre built this, but, uh, you know, I guess if you're a studio rat, you do. But it, you know, no nobody else's records sound like those records, and Buddy Holly's records are really uh, produced, uh, you know, quite amazingly as well. And I don't know, it just hit me at the right place, right time in my life, and I was able to draw the connections between that and all the punk rock stuff that was just starting. I was in high school from 1976 to 1980, which was a pretty great place to be in high school going, you know, I guess I just don't understand Van Halen, you know what I mean? And then, and then bam, here's this other stuff that, you know, no solos, three chords, two minute songs. I love it. You know? And I, I was an am, as you can probably tell, like a super uh, jacked up hyper person. And so, you yeah, know, you're me, dude. This is this is this is the most this is the most uh, proud sponsor of the 500 this week. Ritalin, everybody. <laughs> when you yeah. have ADHD and hyperactivity, try Ritalin. Yeah, as, also as, featuring Adderall. As, <laughs> as an amped up teenager, the last thing I wanted to hear was a guy with uh, you know his shirt unbuttoned to his navel singing "Running on Empty." You know, it's it's like that, that yeah. resonate with me. You know, what, what stonewashed jeans? No, you know, and I understand why at your 
tender, imprintable age with the hair metal, <laughs> why that grabbed you. Because it was fun and it was cocky and it was show business. It has some show business to it. You know what I mean? Like all the oh, singer-songwriters yeah. just sitting there. I was like, eh. And then you'd see James Brown on some uh, you know, variety show and you go, wow, everybody's everybody's dressed in matching suits and they're doing steps and they're jumping around and he it's like this is awesome. You know, it's like it's like I just it, it makes that other stuff just seem uh, pale in comparison and uh, no pun intended. But but it's uh yeah, Buddy Holly was it was always a fixture for me and it's funny like because of his tragic premature end I think you know where he died in a plane crash when he was 22 and and had only made a couple of you know three albums with with the big bopper and Richie Valens yeah yeah that's insane yeah and uh, almost Waylon Jennings yeah right Waylon Jennings uh lost mm-hmm. the coin toss but uh it's uh to get on the plane that that is true uh no I I it's 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 just like there's it's it, to see three artists that had such careers ahead of them and are so important to music all go on the same day it's like I I couldn't even imagine what the state of music or the state of the world I mean that's like losing you know like LeBron James Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh on the same flight you know what I mean just losing people that you just look up to that are changing whatever it is that they do yeah those guys were all yeah. great in different ways you know those three guys are all great in different ways and you know I think with Buddy Holly I think a lot of the music kind of gets overshadowed by that legend by that narrative the day you know all that day the music died stuff you know which uh, undeniably it's a tragedy but it almost does my friend Andy Paley and I uh who I'm in a band together and he he actually was part of that whole CBGBs he was like the zealot of that CBGB scene uh of the 70s and then I, you know I got to be friends with him later and and realized you know what connective tissue he was with all this cool crap back then uh, uh he, and he's a guy with really deep musical knowledge, way, way, way deeper than mine. So him and I have these deep philosophical discussions. And one thing we were just talking about, Andy Paley and I, was that it almost overshadows the music, like does the music a disservice, this joyous, amazing, youthful music, if you're only seeing it and hearing it in the context of this Paul, uh, you know, of this dark, horrible thing that happened, you know, this small aircraft crash in clear lake iowa uh so it's funny i was like i probably don't want to talk that much about that aspect of him even though it is part of the legend for me like what resonated was the music although especially when you're a young person that person who is snatched away prematurely whether it's james dean or jim morrison or shea guevara or whoever whoever is on a t-shirt uh you know, there is something about that. Like, I think part of the reason Buddy's legacy, uh, you know, s- stayed so bright and so current was that you never had to see an old, rotund Buddy Holly in Las Vegas. Yeah, but but then, and, and you're 100% right, but it's the same way I feel about Nirvana. I would have loved to have seen what he would have done. Do you know what I mean? I would have loved yes. to seen the evolution of Buddy Holly. I think there was there's a lot of great music that still was that hadn't been made from him. I mean, you're talking a guy at 22 years old. 
you know, he comes from a musical family, but I mean, this is, he's hit his, he's hit a stride at 22. Can you imagine what he would have done at 30? Would you imagine what he would have done at 40? You know, right. I think, and, and I think I, not to, to go against what you're saying, because I, this was like, listen, you got to understand. So when I saw the chirping crickets coming up on the list, I had no idea it was Buddy Holly. When I put it on, I was expecting it was going to be something like, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you what does go. That's pretty in the dreamers. It was going, yeah, well, see, that's the thing is that's what I thought it was going to be. And then we put, I put the record on and immediately I'm like, holy shit, I know this. Wait, this isn't Buddy. Is this Buddy Holly? And I'm like, it is Buddy Holly. And then I, I listened to it, immediately fell in love with it. But I think there's also, as I'm listening to it, I'm also keeping in mind that this guy came, did three records, two when he was alive, one after he had died was released. And and I think it, it when I listen to it, it just adds so much more gravity to the music where I'm like, not only is this good, but this is like, because it's just like, it's the legend of Buddy Holly. Now it's this like, what could he have done? But man, in the short amount of time that he had, he created gold. Because this record is gold. It's like it's like you know John Henry. You know what I mean? He's he's like got these he's got the steel driving hammer, and he you know he and then he drops dead. You know what I mean? You're like, oh man, yeah. It, it, what 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 could he have done um, in the future? And I think that I think that I keep all of those little pieces in mind because me coming into this, no expectations completely blown away where I've said to Jeremiah, my producer, this might be my favorite record I've listened to so far on this list where I, it just got me. It just right from the beginning. I mean, opening up with, Oh boy. All of my life I've been waiting tonight. There'll be no hesitating. No boy. Then going into, you know, uh, what is the next song after that? Going into Not Fade Away. Not Fade Away. And then, I mean, there's, then you get to a song, Send, in, send Me Some Lovin', which was the one that, j- it just solidified it where I was like, wow, this guy, it's like, he's got the fun, like, you know, Bo Diddley guitar. He's got the, he's got the, uh, the, the foot stompiness of whatever, I guess you want to call it, like with a rock and roll at the time, like a little country influence. But in a sense, this is like the groundwork for all rock and roll that came after it. And I think that's, and I, and I'm just blown away by it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This guy's doing something that nobody was doing at that time. And it, it just resonated with 
everybody. Have you ever seen him perform on, where is it? I have it, on the Ed Sullivan Show. Do you know the story yes. about that? So to all the listeners, all the Kadoogles out there. So basically, he was going to be playing the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, Sullivan's super conservative. He thought the song was too raunchy and had a very blase attitude about him being there. So he cut the crickets act from two songs down to one, had Buddy's guitar line set to low and introduced him as Buddy Hollett. And Buddy reacted by singing and playing harder and then turning up his guitar during the solo, which you were talking about how, how like, how like, you know, the Ramones and the Ronettes are all basically the same thing. This is as punk rock a thing as you can do. That's something like, that's like what Elvis Costello did on Saturday Night Live by changing the song. Very right much. The beginning. It's the most it's badass very much that. shit ever. Right. I'm going to do Radio Radio. I don't care. Yeah, let's let's dive in. Let's do a little bit of the biography. Let's find out a little bit about Buddy Holly. How about sure. that? Let's get us up to this record. All sure. Right? So, all right. Now, while the 1962 re-release of this debut album is credited to Buddy Holly and the Crickets, the original 1957 Brunswick Records release was self-titled The Chirping Crickets, and that's the way we have it on the list. So Buddy Holly was born the youngest of four children during the Great Depression in Lubbock, Texas. Have you been to Lubbock? I've only been to Austin. I've been to the, the the big cities in Texas. I've never been to Lubbock. I've been to Lubbock. And? It makes you love Buddy Holly even more when you realize that he couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. You know what I mean? Like, like I mean. Is it just the middle of nowhere? You know, it's like a lot of those places, you know, it's just kind of, there wasn't a lot for a guy like him. You know, he, you know, his, his, his family had a tile, like a tiling business. And they're like, hey, buddy, you should learn to lay tile. And he's like, I don't want to lay tile, you know. And, and But he couldn't do. And I think people like us, I don't know where you actually grew up, Josh, but. Uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, area. that's right. That's right. You're Baltimore and stuff. So so, uh, so I always identify with that. Like in Syracuse, where I grew up, it was like, I, I like this place. I like these people. But I want to do this weird thing that you just can't do here. So me staying here yeah. isn't, it's kind of a moot point. It's, I can't, what I want to do doesn't exist here. So I got to go where the thing I want to do exists. It's not like, oh, I hate this town or the people are horrible. I love my hometown and, and Buddy supposedly, you know, loved Lubbock and his family was really supportive of him, everything you read. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of those places are, are good places to get away from. And like a lot of those first generation rockers, he grew up in this like, oral stew of a bunch of things that he was really really into that were ubiquitous you know country music he listened to a lot of that his first band was a country yeah. band you know he was a good country singer then oh elvis you know rock and roll he went to see elvis in like 1954 uh buddy howie did and he was like okay i, I love rock and roll and then they said you know black uh black r&b on the black station uh that you can that you're tuning in on your radio and then you know church music and stuff like that so all that stuff with all these first generation rockers that was what they were listening to you know white guys listening to r&b black guys listening to the grand Ole opry you know and everything's like this crazy uh, you know i i you know this, this this crazy mix of stuff well he i mean because you're, you're not only is he is he ex being exposed to all the elements that are in the area but he's coming from a musical family and he learns piano, he learns, learns fiddle, and then his brothers taught him how to play guitar. So, I mean, it's like that's what the family was kind of doing. There's there's probably nothing to do there. So it's like, all right, honey, it's Friday night. Grab the instruments. We're having a hoedown. <laughs> right. And, I mean, they probably partied, that family, you know? 
Buddy played country and western through elementary school, and by high school, him and his musician friends, including Sonny Curtis, Jerry Allison, added the R&B elements they heard on distant late-night radio shows. And by 52, he had a duo, first with Jack Neal, then with Buddy Montgomery, or Bob Montgomery, I'm sorry. In 1955, after graduating high school, Buddy became a full-time musician and fell under the rock and roll influence of Elvis, who he opened up for a few times. Adding his childhood friend Jerry Allison on drums and Larry Welburn on stand-up bass, they got talent scouted while opening for Bill Haley in the comics and by 1956 had a deal with Decca Records, which is incredible. Just like, it's, I was reading this thing about Erica Badu, and it's just like she just randomly played for D'Angelo, and I'm like, when do I get to open up for some big-ass names? <laughs> I feel like I didn't get to any big-ass opportunities until like three, four years into comedy. These guys on like their first fucking show are opening up for the guy, the Rock Around the Clock guy. Yeah. All right. Well, because there was nobody to open. There was no, you know, they're like, oh, we'll just use some local. Is there some local kid band that we could just put up for the for this local yeah. show? And then yeah, when yeah. and then <laughs> they're like, just get the Hollies up yeah, there. I don't care. They're in town. Just we just they want to hear Rock Around the Clock. Play whatever song you want. You got twenty minutes. Don't fuck. Buddy this will up. be there anyway. Buddy like will be there it. anyway. We might as well get him to be the yeah, opening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Buddy Holly was unusual in that he did. Um, write his own songs which a lot of those guys back then did not you know um a lot of the black guys did a, a you know uh chuck berry and and bo diddley and those guys but like you know elvis didn't really write songs jerry lee lewis didn't really write songs they they would hear demos and and just go i want to do that or i like that or these guys wrote me a song on the last album that i really liked let's do it you know and a lot of is it was almost a more of a a picky choosy approach and buddy holly wrote his own songs the way those you know those black guys did and also unlike a lot of those guys i think when you read about buddy holly like he really wanted artistic control and in you know during a time where rock and roll and the pimply people who made it were kind of seen as this kind of disposable resource hey this rock and roll thing is going to be over in a year or two just make your 245s and you know be happy about it and shut up and buddy holly was really even though he was only like a 20 year old kid from the middle of nowhere in texas he still wanted to you know he was all you know publishing and and labels and trying to own his masters and he did make a lot of mistakes as we all would have trying to be businessmen at 22 or 58 <laughs> and uh <laughs> i'm still the worst businessman in the world but uh <laughs> oh well i guess i'm not i'm not going to suddenly have a learning curve at this point in my life it's like i feel like you're i feel like you're doing okay bro <laughs> i feel like you're doing great by in, you're doing really really uh, good you know topic. in spite of myself not not because of of having any stratego uh, uh smarts but that to me that's amazing and we were talking earlier there's there's that phone call that buddy holly makes to he calls decca records they've made a bunch of his songs including an early version of that'll be the day and they decided it wasn't good enough to release it just wasn't hitting them and buddy was like well if you're not going to use it can i record it somewhere else and he finally gets through to this guy on the phone buddy taped the phone call you can hear the phone call and the guy's like, no, buddy, we own those tapes. We have them for five years. Well, I thought maybe you might could... Uh... No, we'll probably release those records, buddy. You probably release them? Oh, sure. We'll probably got money tied up in those songs. Well, uh, what if I was to pay the session fee on them? And just... No, they wouldn't give money. 
Decker doesn't do that. They wouldn't do that no way whatsoever, will I? I mean, Decker didn't seem to be doing too much farming. I thought I might try somewhere else, well, you know. If you tr- if you and you can just see him stuck in this loop of the way this stupid business works, and he's trying to... He wants to own his stuff. Which is so insane because this is like early version Jerky Boys. I don't know if you remember them. It's like old prank call shit. Where's my father? Dude, he's ahead of his time. He's ahead of his time. Buddy Holly was the Jerky Boys. (laughs) Peppy Roly! Is there a Peppy Roly here? Um, you know what's funny? Somebody right now is having that exact same phone call conversation with somebody at Quibi. Exactly. <laughs> well, everywhere, right? I mean, I mean, you know, like like again, you know, boo hoo, I mean, yeah. but 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 you know, this is what the business always is. And to me, when I first heard that, it was like it kind of makes you feel better that even geniuses like Buddy Holly get their balls busted by stupid show business nonstop. It. You know, I'm just 100%. I'm just picturing this guy like putting golf balls into a can. You know, <laughs> during the yeah. during the phone call. Yeah, buddy. I'm sorry that you got your son to dick. I can't do Baba Ski Boot, and you're like, and the guy's like, he's trying not to tell him to go fuck himself, but you can hear. That's it. He's what like, I love. Such this nice Christian kid. He's playing. Yeah. He's playing that aw shucks Texas thing, but he also. It's almost like Buddy's making a sales call. Don't let the customer off the phone, you know, until you make the sale. But you also hear him getting beaten down. But also what's great, so sometimes in these kind of situations, good stuff comes of that. And because of that, and him not being able to have his control with Decca, he leaves Decca and finds producer Norman Petty. And then that's where he gets the band together with Jerry Allison on drums, Joe B. Malden on upright bass, Nikki Sullivan on rhythm guitar. They went to Petty's Clovis New Mexico recording studio to cut a demo of the previously recorded original song called That'll Be the Day. Petty became their manager and sent the demo to Brunswick Records in New York. But due to Buddy's restrictive solo contract, they took Jerry Allison's idea and basically gave them a insect bird name, and they came up with the crickets. And then the demo was released as a single in May of 1957, and due, due in large part to this hiccupy vocals, rave-up guitar, and non-threatening horn rim glasses image, by September, it was a hit, and Buddy both had a solo and a band record deal with the same lineup. I mean, that's just incredible. That is that is that is that is that is making applesauce out of bad apples. I mean, that is as good as it can get. So they released this record in 1957, followed by Buddy's solo record, backed by the Crickets the next year. And because of that, the guy's got seven top 40 hits between 1957 and 1958. So in my opinion, I feel like he won. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like F Decca. He doesn't need Decca. And because of Buddy, I mean. He changes the face of rock and roll. You don't have people like Bob Dylan. You don't have Elton John. You don't have Elvis Costello. You don't have the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles literally took their name because because they were inspired by Buddy Holly. I mean, the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest band to ever exist, the most storybook career, the Michael Jordan of music, are the Beatles, and they are so obsessed with Buddy Holly. So the guy knew what he was doing, and he did it right. He did it right, regardless if he said he's getting screwed. To the point where McCartney goes, I'm going to buy the Buddy Holly catalog because I love it. Like, you know what I mean? Can you can you imagine? Do you think do you think that do you think Paul tried to like pitch Ringo yeah. on it? And he was like, <laughs> Hey, listen, I got this idea. 
I was thinking about buying some of the crickets. How do you feel? You want to go have these? <laughs> Ringo's like, no. Ringo's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really unusual for an artist back then to to just to have to fight so hard for autonomy, even even if you got slapped up, uh, slapped down, you know. And it's funny, like when you when you read about like those early rock and roll days like i remember i used to call it fake fake 50s like i'd watch happy days and i would go this is the fake 50s this isn't the real 50s this is fake 50s like and then you'd read about the real 50s you, you know the or the real rock and roll and it was like this decadent decadent craziness going on same as it ever was right you're like you're like wow these guys led zeppelin didn't do anything to a hotel room that these guys didn't do 30 years before you know sure and sure i think it's important to listen to this stuff with without all that baggage you know because it has been kind of sanitized and cleaned up and it's kind of safely in the rearview mirror now like like people were scared to rock and roll you know nashville and country music People were like, this could be an extinction event as far as we're concerned for our, you know, they didn't really know that they, they didn't really know rock and roll. They didn't know how to make it. They didn't know how to record it. That's why Buddy Holly, those Buddy Holly sessions didn't come out because, you know, they were cut in Nashville. And yeah, it's like it's the beginning of of, of something. And like you said earlier, it could have it been gone in two years. Most people assumed it would be. All right. Let's dive into a couple of the songs. All right. So we already talked about Oh Boy. Uh, I want to start off by talking about Not Fade Away. Peter, uh, play a little taste and Not Fade Away. My love bigger than a Cadillac. I try to show it when you drive me back. So uh, I was I was buying Brussels sprouts and vegetables yesterday as I was uh, doing my quarantine shopping, and I mean I was probably singing this at full blast at the Ralphs on Sunset. I, I just this song is so incredible on so many levels, not just the Bo Diddley rhythm, but it's the fact that after I found out that drummer Jerry Allison is playing drums on a cord a cardboard box, cardboard boxes, you know, like that's just fantastic yeah that happened on a few records back then they're like you know the drums are too loud could you just take these cardboard boxes and you know <laughs> there's, you know, there, there's some liquor bottles in them drain the liquor drain the liquor out of those bottles and then play the empty cardboard box and uh, uh hey frank uh <laughs> I, frank i heard you're moving next week when you're done with that if you don't mind just saving a few of those boxes i need a new kit <laughs> you know I, what I mean? so. I, i'm making an album can i have your extra beacons uh box <laughs> What I think I love the most about this song is is something that we breezed over earlier, but the Grateful Dead covered this. The Rolling Stones have their first top 10 single in 64. Rush covered this as their first single in 73. Florence and the Machine covered this song uh, because she saw the biopic as a child, the Buddy Holly story. I mean, how, like, let me ask you, how does this song make you feel? Well, my, my teenage band in Syracuse, the Two Jerkers, uh, covered this too in the in the late 70s early 80s and um yeah it's just one of those records it's great it's super simple it's stripped down um bo Di you know it's definitely the bo diddley beat in fact i think you know i read somewhere that he heard the rolling stones version and he he said those guys owe me money and then they go oh actually buddy holly put it out before them and he's like what buddy holly did that you know <laughs> buddy holly owes me money i wish well, i, I had think known. you know and, and to, to comment off that i think tom what also makes the covers by the rolling stone the grateful dead 
I haven't heard Rush or Florence and the Machine, but I did listen to Stones and the Dead. They they made their own they made their own version of this. That's why that's how you do a cover. You don't just copy it. You 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 put your flair. I mean, the Rolling Stones is faster and the Grateful Dead's is nineteen minutes long. So I mean, <laughs> you know, do what you gotta do. That's the shortest song they ever did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm it's like, I saw the Grateful so Dead, they funny. played for three I saw the Grateful Dead, they played for three and a half hours. Excellent song though. <laughs> I mean, they break in the middle of it, which I thought was a little <laughs> weird. But I mean, you know, it's it's a symphony. I wanted to ask you this because we 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 breezed over. You've had this incredible career, but specifically, you've had this incredible voice acting career. So I want to ask you, what's your earliest memory of watching animation, and how did that shape your career as a VO artist? Well, you know, I was always tuned into sounds, like m- more than. You know, more than my other senses, like I listen to stuff. And I think maybe, you know, that's why I love music so much. And, you know, I don't know if I don't know if people will pick up on our passion for this stuff, because, you you know, the saying uh, talking about music is like dancing to architecture. I don't I don't know if you if you know that quote, but uh, it's, <laughs> I've never heard that. But I it's love like, it. Why even I try? It's true. Right. Talking about music is like dancing to architecture. You know, like why? Why? Why do we why are we even doing it? But uh but it's fun. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh revisiting classic material talking about the new classics um all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speaker's Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. So I was always tuned into voices and sounds and um, cartoons in particular. I just love the voices of Mel Blanc, uh, you know, Dawes Butler, uh, you know, all the Bullwinkle guys, Bill Scott, and and just all those all those classic voices and. Um, 
there was just something about it. And, and I would read the credits of the cartoons and just figure out who did what and go, wait a minute. So wait, the guy, the guy that does, the guy that does Mr. You know, Mr. Spacely on the Jetsons is the Bugs Bunny guy. What? Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Tweety and Mr. Spacely, George Jetson's boss and, and Barney Rubble. They're all the same guy. Whoa. You know, mind blown, you know, growing up in the pre-internet world where you couldn't just, you can't just Google search something. And no, it was, it was hard to find people who even, who even gave a crap about this stuff. Like, you know, and I was just always way too interested in it. And, um, you know, I really wanted to do voiceovers. I started out as a, you know, I played in bands. I did stand up. I did sketch comedy, but really voiceover, particularly for animation was always the dream job that I wanted to have. And it was by far the hardest tent to get my nose under. To like break I, into. Yeah. I was making a living as a standup. I had been a writer on TV shows, uh, you know, all this other stuff, sketch comedy, you know, I was getting paid to, you know, I was paying my rent. I was able to quit. I've been day job free since like 1987. And so it, but that was the one nut that I couldn't, freaking crack it used to drive me crazy and i would try i would just audition for stuff all the time and when i was living in san francisco in the 80s i you know i made a demo tape and i would just knock on the doors of like you know advertising agencies and stuff and try try and drop it off and you know put on a nice little suit and tie you know and none of it you know nothing worked and then when i finally did get my first uh voiceovers in the early 90s um my first series was Rocco's Modern Life, which is an early 90s Nickelodeon show. Oh, I but remember, be- yeah. Before that, I was I was on the really short-lived Dumb and Dumber animated series. And as as the bad guy. So they had a vo- they had voice matches for uh for Jim Carrey and and Jeff Daniels. And it was um you know, the 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 voice match for for Jim Carrey was Oh God, Max Headroom, Mac, Matt Frewer. Oh wow! If you remember that, you know he's oh, done. I, I remember stuff. Max Headroom. Yeah, <laughs> so he was the Jim Carrey guy, and then the Jeff Daniels guy was voiced by this guy Bill Foggerbachy. That was, uh, he was an actor on the show Coach on the TV series Coach, the sitcom. He was like he played this big dumb football player named Dauber. Dauber? Yeah. Oh, come on. You act like I don't know Dauber? How you doing, coach? Right. <laughs> so I can't do it. <laughs> so I first met Dauber, Bill Foggerbucky, on this Dumb and Dumber show that lasted six episodes or something. And then a few years later, I got this show, SpongeBob SquarePants, and the sidekick is this dumb starfish named Patrick Starr, like this thick-headed starfish, and Bill Foggerbucky is the voice of Patrick. And I'm like, hey, I remember you from Dumb oh and Dumb. And he's like, oh my gosh, hey, good to see you again, bro. You know, and now we've been working together every Wednesday, Bill and I, for 21 years. That is incredible. So SpongeBob's still in production. SpongeBob's never been out of production for 20 years. Dude, it's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, come on. It truly is in, in very many different ways. I mean- Obviously, it's nice to have a job that lasts for a long time. In Hollywood, yes. Oh, my God. And it's also, a you know, a total complete gift when that job actually is fun and the people on that job actually are nice and creative. And, you know, like you were saying that Karen Kilgariff, uh, Karen Kilgariff said that I was pretty scandal free. 
But uh, <laughs> what do you got? What do you got? I got Come no on, scandals. Hold out on me, Tom. Uh, I got no scandals. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, to to still be You're like one job. time the call was seven seven a.m. I showed up at seven thirty. <laughs> Scandalous. <laughs> I am kind. Of, I am kind of the late guy. But you know, it's a job that's great. It's a job that you love, and and I look forward to doing it. And you know, I voice direct the show too. Uh, now the last few seasons, and you know, I like the people. I love the character. I love the concept. It's been 20-something years, so people who were little kids when they started watching it are now grown-ups, and SpongeBob is this warm and fuzzy thing in their lives that they have all this affection for, like like Winnie the Pooh or something, you know what I mean? And they just, you just get all this goodwill that I can't think of any other job in show business where you get pretty much only good vibes and goodwill, like you really never run into anybody who goes, I hate that show. I've hated it for 22 years. It's like, people go, oh, SpongeBob, my kids love that. Or my grandkids love that. Or I used to watch it with my dad. He's dead now. Or, you know, or, or, or my kid, you know, I was in the hospital when I was a little kid and I just watched that show over and over again. Like whatever, like everybody's got a story and, and this crazy, you know, this weird job where you go in and, you know, make funny voices and talk like you're sucking on helium, you know, for 20 years kind of has this resonance with people and it's all positive it's it's i can't think of any other gig in show business where it's all positive and i think that's one reason why i'm not really on any social media i don't go on twitter i don't go on facebook i don't want to fight with anybody i don't want anybody to harsh my mellow (laughs) i just i just go in and do these do these fun characters and then i come home for dinner and you know once in a while i you know once a four four times five times a year i'll go to a comic-con and meet a ton of nice people Probably won't be a while till I'm able to do that. But it's up. Uh, <laughs> hey, shake hands. It's gonna be but a minute. <laughs> it's really been an amazing. It's really been an amazing thing to springboard off of that. And I got the call, the phone call that SpongeBob had been picked up. That 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 the pilot, the seven minute pilot we did was getting picked up for a series. While I was on a set of the set of Mr. Show, we were filming in some remote location somewhere, like like uh, inside a barn, like inside like a like a stinky barn it was like a it, it was a middle ages sketch it wasn't how many uh, not you weren't in how many dicks can you stick in these holes was it was it uh jeepers creepers it wasn't that one that was, was in the it, desert though that, i mean i feel like there's barn in that, that. was in the desert but yeah. i remember <laughs> i was dressed up like a wizard so they had like you know this beard on and they're they're putting individual tweezers of of of, of gray hair on your face and gluing it on and it's like 95 degrees and you're in this barn and it smells like livestock and then i get the call that go hey that voiceover gig is going and i was like voiceover was really looking good to me then at that point you know yeah. and <laughs> you're chewing on some weird hairs that are attached yeah, to your face yeah like, picking them yeah. off your tongue like well wait what was that karen uh craft service is ready yeah i, I don't think i'll be able to eat for three days i got I mean, did you have any idea that when you auditioned for SpongeBob that it was going to be, I mean, a 20 year run? Well, you know how it is. Like, I always look at like guys like us, like like journeymen, you know, comedian writers, whatever it is you do. You're just uh, you're just trying to do something, you know, just both to be creative and to try and not work in a store. So your goal is to not work in a store and maybe do something that kind of uses the creative part of your brain. I, you know, maybe I, maybe I can do some stuff yeah. that other people can't do. You know, maybe I got some skills. I don't know. And until somebody hires you to do that and hires you a few times to do that, 
you're not sure whether you're just like a delusional weirdo or not. Like maybe I'm the only one who thinks I don't suck. And then when you start getting hired for stuff and you actually have a resume, you know, you can go, okay, I'm not, I actually have been paid to do this stuff. So maybe I have an aptitude. I'm not, I'm not crazy. And once you realize you're not crazy, then, then it's just a matter of trying to engender more work. Right. So, and and then it's just like the next 50 years of your life is kind of, is just like Frogger, you know, where you're just trying to get across the road without getting flattened like that video game Frogger. And, Oh yeah. And then hopefully you make it for enough years that you're okay. And, you know, you don't have to live in a cardboard box under a bridge and then you die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. For, thanks for killing the mood there. Yay! Bro. Jesus uh, I'm ready. All right. So uh, thank goodness I have SpongeBob in my, my life to drag me into <laughs> in a your positive repertoire place. to get out of any weird situation. <laughs> well, yeah. and also have you used also, that to get out of something like super weird? Oh man. <laughs> Please tell me you it's, have. So, you know, SpongeBob is definitely the ultimate, uh, uh, if not literally, it probably would be a good get out of jail free card. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put it to the test. But. You've never like gotten pulled over by the cops and you were, you know, and you were just like, oh boy, or somebody goes, well, hold on, what was that? That's SpongeBob. And you're like, that's eh, me. You know, I've been SpongeBob for 19 years. And I've done like, it twice. Once it worked. <laughs> and once the cop was just like, yeah, I don't care. The other guy was, the first guy was like, hey, yeah, if you could just, uh, here's send, send an eight by 10 to my kids. You know, I'm going to write down my address. I, Remember, I know where you live. You better sign those eight by tens and you better send them. I was like, of course, officer. And then, uh, you know, yeah, when he pulls you over, you're you're just saying, uh, you know, you just go, oh, sorry. I was on my way to a <clears throat> cartoon recording session. <clears throat> oh, really? Where do you work? Oh, Nickelodeon little show and <clears throat> Sponge, SpongeBob SquarePants. Hey, I know SpongeBob. I got kids. You're Sp- what, what part do you play? SpongeBob. You're SpongeBob? And then you go, oh, I think I'm getting out of this ticket. And then the second time I try to catch that perfect wave again. Eh, nope. Nah, Thank you man. for playing, Tom. <laughs> dude, but, <laughs> you only catch lightning in a bottle once, dude. Yeah, you, know you only, I mean? yeah. You, lightning in a bottle, it goes one time. Yeah, exactly. So so it sometimes it works and sometimes it don't, but but I uh but yeah, it's a great gig. And then the the beauty of it is that, you know, the the four days a week you're not doing SpongeBob, you can work on other cartoons. So you don't get sick of it. It's not like you're Spock or something where you're going, I, I hate this character. Sure. It's strangling me. Or, you know, James Bond or something with Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get out of this. You know, he's driving me crazy. You, it's a great Sean Connery, uh, by the, the worst. way. The worst. Yeah, I can do a <laughs> Scottish guy. You, I can't you, do you a Scottish guy. past it quick. But I was, like, I was like, Sean, are you here? One thing. <laughs> are you in the room? I'm so bad at impressions. I was always the worst impressionist in the world. But one good thing, like, if I look at my resume, like, I've managed to get so many paychecks by combining two or three of my crappy impressions into a standalone new voice. You know what I mean? Like, wow, if I, if I take my... Who is, who is... So what is SpongeBob made up of? Well, you know, Steve Hillenberg, the creator of SpongeBob, who, who passed away uh, a couple of years ago, he, he really knew what he wanted for everything. Like, he was super brilliant, total, total genius. And he... He basically just wrote down, he had a Bible, you know, of the series. And before anybody saw it, you know, he just took it. I was his first choice, which has never happened before to me and before or since. And he just handed me the Bible and he said, this is SpongeBob. He, he said, I'm not a, I'm, you know, I'm not a voice actor, so I'm not going to try and 
demonstrate for you because I, I don't do that, but he's half a boy, he's half a man, he's half grown up, like he lives in a house by himself and he has a job, but he's also a little kid and he holds hands with his best friend and they skip around town and, you know, you know, there's, it's a weird mix of, of grown up and little kid. And I said, oh, so like Jerry Lewis or like the Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy, like, you know, how the Three Stooges all sleep in the same bed like little kids. Pee Wee Herman, you know, people like that where yeah. where we said, oh, so I know right what we're tapping into, that comedy archetype of somebody who's physically not a child. It's not like Charlie Brown and Linus, but but they act like a little kid and they have the soul that, you know, the soul of a little kid. And he said, yeah, kind of like a munchkin, you know, kind of, he just gave me this little roadmap. And then, you know, then, then, then we just started doing that. And then, you know, what do you think of this? And blah, 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 blah. What was that? I go, I don't know. That's his, that's when he laughs. It's He sounds like a dolphin when he laughs, you know, I don't know why. <laughs> and he goes, that's great. You know, and 20 something years later, uh, it's still going. And what we what we were talking about earlier, like that's what I think is the beautiful thing about this property, about this character that Steve Hillenberg created, this world, is that none of it is nasty. Because usually when something gets really big, the the instinct is to tear it down, especially for us comedians. You know what I mean? I'll tell you why I hate that. You know, that's that's kind of what we do. I'm going to take the piss out of that. And with SpongeBob, I notice when I'm doing like a radio tour, like a satellite tour, mm-hmm. I go on hip hop stations, country stations news stations, mom stations, uh, you know, metal stations, you know, college alternative stations like SpongeBob can kind of go anywhere and people have this affection for him and people are always, you know, uh, sending me stuff. Hey, John Oliver, John Oliver made a SpongeBob joke in his monologue last, last night, you know, or whatever. And it's just cool to be a part of that without having the pain in the ass of being famous. You know what I mean? Yes. Cause I never really, I never really wanted to be famous. And I guess maybe when I was really young and stupid, I kind of wanted to. But then when I saw the some of the people I started out with getting famous, after my initial resentment and jealousy of like, hey, why them and not me? What am I, chopped liver? Do I suck? Then you see them take the ride back down and you say, I don't know if I could do that, if I could take that. I don't know if I have the intestinal fortitude to deal with being lifted up smashed back down to the ground and then you got to crawl your way back up to something i i don't know if tom kenny's strong enough for that but luckily i managed to finagle my way into this kind of workmanlike career where you you just you're like a session musician that's i think that's another thing why i love music so much and and musicians even though i don't play an instrument is that I feel like I'm like a session musician that talks. That's a perfect way to put it. That's a perfect way to put it. And I and I and I've done a bunch of small things here and there. But here's my deal: I can either play. I only have three choices: uh, coked out radio DJ, old Jewish woman, or garbage disposal. That's what I can play. But I'm fine with that because that's my voice and that's my truth. Speak your truth. <laughs> that's right. And you know what? You're making a joke, but that's true. Like there's voiceover guys that can run rings around me just in terms of versatility and like impressions, which I, like I said before, I suck at impressions. And, you know, it's like, you just got to take what you got. You go, okay, Chuck Berry had, you know, a handful of chords and he wrote a bazillion great songs with, with poetic lyrics. I'm going to try to be as Chuck Berry as I can with yeah. the funky little tool belt 
that the universe has uh, supplied me with. All right, let's jump into That'll Be The Day. Because, I mean, this is probably one of his biggest songs ever. This was first recorded in 1956 with his band The Three Tunes for Decca Records, but after two failed singles, they shelved it. Unhappy with the first recording, he lowered the key and added some background vocals and recorded it, re-recorded it with the crickets. Peter, play the intro. Probably one of the most famous guitar runs to open a song uh, in the history of music, you know? Yeah, and I think that's Buddy playing that. You're 100% correct. That is Buddy. This is something that I think sums this up perfectly. I saw this quote, and it says, It runs in under two minutes and 20 seconds, but it was long enough to change the direction of rock and roll. I mean, I think that's a perfect way to describe this song. Right, and... You know where that song came from was that they had seen the John Wayne movie, the John Ford movie, The Searchers, right? Yep. And that's John Wayne's that's John Wayne's catchphrase in that movie. Oh, that'll be the day. You know, whenever he doesn't think something's got a chance of happening, he goes, that'll be the day. And so I told you I suck at impressions. And so then those guys, Jerry Allison, I think, and uh, and Buddy Holly walk out of the theater just like we do with our friends, right? Like, like just making fun of this, this line in this movie and just trying to, you know, just making fun of it and making impressions of it. And then they write, then they write a, then they write a hit song that's still around. Speaking of that'll be the day. I want you to tell me when was the first moment you actually felt like you had made your place in Mr. Show? Oh, wow. Well, Mr. Show was cool because that came out of, you know, the early days of the alternative comedy scene here in, Los Angeles. And it was just everybody kind of running around Bob and Dave. And we used to do, they used to write these shows and the, you know, the thing that became Mr. Show and they would do it, you know, just around town at various alternative venues. And I got to say, like they believed in it so much and Bob and David, and they just kept going back with it and trying to, trying to get Bernie Brillstein and HBO and Bernie, but we want to, we want to see different material. You know what I mean? So those guys would write like a ton of new sketches and we'd do them and it would seem like it went pretty good live. And then they would go, that's gr- we really funny. But I, I, I'd like to see different material, you know? And so those guys would go and work really hard. Like they had more stick to than I ever would have had with this thing. And, and eventually it got picked up by HBO and we did it. But th- yeah, they were really good. It was, it was a really good group and a great crew to work with. And, it was just everybody was having fun and you know the majority of the headaches were being had by Bob and David cuz they were the guys in charge so we were all having a pretty great time i don't know about Bob and David they're probably being driven insane by by various uh, uh parties much like buddy holly trying to call that uh, call that record company but but it was it was great times yeah it was fun it was you know, nobody was making any bread and and no you know the show had a really small audience but it it built up a cult following uh, pretty quickly huge cult and, and, following yeah but when what what was the sketch that made you feel like you had left your impact on the mr show world well you know i always liked uh you know i always appreciated when when they would let me just run with a character like one thing there was a, there was a founding fathers sketch where you know i was supposed to be abraham lincoln and without telling bob and those guys 
I just decided to make Abe Lincoln yeah, be. I made him be a Brooklyn guy. I made him be yeah. a. Bro- I, I turned. I, I made Abe. I made Abe Lincoln like this. Yeah. This, this, you know this guy from from freaking Brooklyn. Like makes no sense. It's totally stupid, <laughs> and like Brooklyn Lincoln, and it really made the made uh, them laugh. You know, made Bob laugh and David laugh, and you know you just feel good when you can. And Hillenberg was the same way. You know, when you when you can make the the creator of your show really laugh hard. You, you just, uh, you know, it, it, it feels good and you want to do more of that. And you're like, okay, I'm safe, you know. Did you guys know that you were making something? I mean, maybe not. Like you said at the time it was underwatched and the network wasn't really behind you guys. But did you know, did you have a feeling that you guys were doing something that was going to be just this cult following, you know? Like, who did you think you were writing the show for besides yourselves? You know, I think, you know, it's funny how amazingly alike uh the spongebob and mr show experiences were because it was obvious that both with both those projects you know that they're different than everything else and they make you laugh and they're and they're you know they just seem to have something that other stuff doesn't but there's lots of stuff that's good that fails so you don't ever really know what's gonna you know what's gonna gonna take off and what's gonna be just not you know yeah and my resume, my IMDb is so full of stuff, full of stuff that became much more powerful in death than in life. So yeah. after you, you know, after you couldn't make money on it or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like, like it's too late for the show to get picked up, but you know, a couple of years after it's off the air, people start discovering it and you're like, I guess that's good. Cause then those people that rediscover it wind up running show business and they kind of have a, a, a fondness for you and they go, Hey, how about that guy? He was always funny on that show that I liked and nobody else did. So you kind of, um, it's been good, you know, but, uh, we had no idea. We, you know, we were just having fun and Bob and David were just, again, like Steve Hillenberg. It's funny. I'm, there's so many similarities between those guys. They knew exactly what they wanted. It, and I guess like Buddy Holly too, despite being young, they knew exactly what they wanted and they were, uh, they were insistent on it, you know, and, and just surrounded themselves with, with, uh, good people and yeah. tried to make the thing that they were seeing in their head. My goal, my goal, we, we still have seven more years of this show. I've had you on now, Karen Kilgariff, Mary Lynn. I'm definitely getting Bob. I'm definitely getting David. I'm getting Jeff. You know, I'm getting them all, dude. I'm getting your whole, I'm getting everybody. I'll get Sarah, even though she was on like two episodes. I'm getting y'all. It's the best show. I know one time, I, I, last time I was at Odenkirk's house, he was playing the Faces, the Faces album, you know, Rod Stewart before he was Rod Stewart. So, so oh, I don't really? know if that's in the top 500, but I know he's uh, a Faces guy. Dude, thank and, you for um, the intel though, because that's what we're going to approach him <laughs> with. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. All right, I wanted to move to my favorite song on this record. Uh, Track 10, Send Me Some Lovin'. This is the song, and what I'm about to play, is the moment 
I solidified my new love for Buddy Holly. Peter, play 140. Can't you send me your kisses? The power of that harmony compared to his like hiccup going like ah, is so incredible. Listening to this for the first time, it stopped me in my tracks and brought tears to my eyes because I was like, this is this is why this guy is so important because he can play the rockabilly. He can do the Bo Diddley, but he just wrote this standard, this love song standard that I felt every single piece of what about you i love that song you know he um that's a that's an amazing thing about buddy that i guess he shares with the beatles uh, is that he can you know he's got solid rock and roll cred you know he can he can rock and scream and jump up and down uh, but he can also do those tender ballads with all those weird hiccups in it and it doesn't seem corny you know and i don't know that i don't think he wrote uh, send me some love and in fact i think no, it was actually, uh, it was originally recorded by Little Richard. That's it. That, and Little yeah. Richard, with Little Richard, it's got much more of a New Orleans. Ba, ba, da, ba, da, ba, da, ba, da. Send me some love. Who send it, I pray. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a much more of an R&B thing. And both, it's funny, I've been listening to both versions of those since uh, we lost Little Richard over the weekend. And it's funny how those guys, each guy approached that song differently and they're both beautiful. I mean, I, I can't, I listen, I, I loved every song on this record, but that's the one that I'm going to take with me. I think for the rest of my life where I'm just like having that moment of hearing that harmony in that song, it just, it was like, it touched my soul. You actually, don't you have, you said you have a little Richard buddy Holly story. <laughs> yes. That also, uh, this is, this is amazing. Like the fabric of the universe and how, you know, stuff, the, the, the tangled web of the universe and how stuff comes back around and elliptical paths and all that. But so in my standup, I used to read from the little Richard, uh, autobiography, uh, little Richard, the quasar of rock that came out in the eighties. And I used to read from it. And there is one story that Richard tells about buddy Holly having, um, having a crush on little Richard's buxom girlfriend who supposedly had like a 50 inch bust or something. And buddy is really into her. And Richard finally goes, Hey angel, do you like buddy? Yeah. Buddy, do you like angel? Yeah. You guys have fun. So, and then they introduce buddy's name on stage and he has to uh, quick, uh, quick uh, wrap up his business and run on stage at the Paramount theater. So, uh, the lady's name, I don't know if she's still with us. Her name was Lee Angel. And so in the 80s, I'm at the Palomino Club here in Los Angeles, since closed, way down on Lancashire, on Funky Lancashire. It was like a honky-tonk club, and they booked a lot of Roots music. Jerry Lee Lewis used to play there all the time in the 80s and, you know, even into the 90s. And lo and behold, somebody introduces me to this woman, Lee Angel, and I recognize her photo from the Little Richard book. It's her. She's older, but it's her. I'm like, oh my God. They go, this is my friend, Lee Angel. You know, she, it, we were going to see some oldies act like, like uh, La, La, Laverne Baker or somebody like that. 
And she was there and they go, Hey, this is Lee Angel. And I said, Lee Angel, I know you. I've heard of you. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And, and she said, you look like Buddy Holly. <laughs> and I said, yeah, people say that. And she said, I knew Buddy. And I said, yeah. And then she puts her hands on her hips and she goes, not as well as some people say I did. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So, you know, again, just a weird way stuff comes around. What are the odds that I, you know, you grow up loving Buddy Holly, you love Little Richard, you read the Little Richard book, you become a stand-up, you read from the Little Richard book on stage, there's a girlfriend of Little Richard's that Buddy Holly has sex with, then you meet that woman in the 1980s and she tells you, you look like Buddy Holly, but she didn't, but Little Richard was uh, t telling a lie in that book. And so that that's just like brain exploding stuff right am i right i mean that's that's it's i mean that's how great the the universe is always working in your favor and it, another weird universe thing today the day that we're recording this interview and i didn't think about this until now i used to i used to have like big punk rock hair you know when i was doing stand-up like big moosed up spiky rooster hair and I used to, and I would wear the glasses. So I went, you know, I would go up and one of my hacky jokes was, eh, I know if, if, I look like if Buddy Holly and Woody Woodpecker had a baby, you know? And, yeah. uh, today my first gig this morning was doing voice acting in Woody Woodpecker being Wally Walrus and Woody Woodpecker. And now I'm on your show talking about Buddy Holly. So that, that joke wow. actually came home to roost. Uh, you know, how freaking weird is that? It's like, that hey, is, I'm like the, is, illegitimate, so I'm great, like the illegitimate offspring of Buddy Holly and Woody Woodpecker. Today I do Woody Woodpecker, and then I'm talking about Buddy Holly. Oh, my God, that's so great. This was meant to happen, Tom. All right, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Yeah. Send me all your facts. All right. Buddy Holly was killed shortly after marrying Maria Santiago. She suffered a miscarriage soon after his death, making him one of a kind. I can't tell you how much that upsets me. You know, the fact that someone great, and I mean great, like Buddy Holly, doesn't have a kin to spread that talent and that, and that wealth and, and, you know, who knows what could have happened from that child. And George Foreman has 14 kids. How is that? possible why does the universe do shit like that i could you mean i could be cooking in an alternate universe i could be cooking my hamburgers on the buddy holly grill yes that's what i'm saying <laughs> probably still have that shitty plastic spatula and you burn yourself but either way <laughs> i know a thing about working a spatula there is like yeah there's so many tragic uh, uh notes to that that final story he had just got married she was pregnant and buddy was it's funny, like he looked like you hear in that phone call, you know, he was like the nice, bespectacled, polite Texas kid, but he's also got this grit. And from what I've heard and read and having been to Lubbock, uh, there were a lot of quarters in Lubbock where him marrying a Latina was not a real popular, uh, you know, that, that didn't go over real well, you know? This is, and, this is uh, the late 50s, yeah. Yes, Yes, it's, it was like, an, you know, I mean, that might is pretty much an interracial marriage, you know, at a time where that, you know, wasn't a super common thing. And so, uh, you know, his immediate family 
I, you know, really liked her, but I think you know that a lot of the townsfolk uh, were just just couldn't believe it. And she's she has a really weird relationship with Lubbock, even still. She's still alive, uh, Maria Elena. Oh wow! And, uh, it's yeah, it's funny. I I I wanted to. She's still alive. You know who did die recently, like in 2018 or something, was the girl who the song who the Peggy Sue, who the song Peggy Sue was written about, and um. She passed away in 2018. She was like the girlfriend of Jerry Ellison, the cardboard box drummer. Yeah. And her name was literally Peggy Sue. So they they write that song. But I remember when she died, and I had to check this on my phone today to make sure I wasn't just nuts. But in her obituary, buried way down at the bottom, besides being the subject of this really famous song, you know, almost the last sentence of the obituary was, uh, Peggy Sue was also the first licensed woman plumber in the state of California. Fuck yeah, she was. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That should have been way at the top. That should have been at the fucking top. That's that's a first plumber in the state of California that's a female died today. Also, Peggy Sue was written about her. <laughs> yeah, big a deal that is. If you knew Peggy's poo, then you'd know it. <laughs> oh, Peggy, Peggy poo. Oh, hit a hit Where did right. he get that from? That is just, he, certain people, especially those early rockers like Little Richard, who we just lost. I met Little Richard and, and worked with him a little bit in the early 90s. There's certain people. Roy Orbison was another one who wrote two of the songs on the Chirping Crickets album of Roy Orbison did. Um, there's certain people that you just go, that guy is an alien that's passing as an earthling. He's a human. He's yeah. not, you know, there's certain people. I always thought that about little Richard. I always thought, especially when I opened for Roy Orbison and he was kind of like this weird semi albino with the glasses and their, you know, his eyesight was really bad and they're leading him on stage. And he looked like he was wearing an earth person's costume, you know? <laughs> I, I was like, there's there's aliens among us. Roy Orbison's one, Little Richard's one, and I definitely think Buddy Holly was one. So one of the co-writers of You Got Love was Roy Orbison, who, compared to the unattainable sex appeal of Elvis Presley, felt emboldened by Buddy's unconventional image to pursue his own rock and roll career. Do you understand how awesome that is, that Roy looked at Buddy and said, but you're a fucking nerd. He goes, if your nerd ass can make it, then my pale chubby ass could be a star too. He's like, he saw him and he was like, I can do, if you could do that, I can do this with my fake human skin. (laughs) It's not like this Buddy Holly guy exudes raw sex, you know? Uh, (laughs) Right. Well, you know, there was Elvis in terms of the white rock and rollers. There was Elvis and then there was everybody else in terms of the, you know, panther-like animal sex appeal. Like, Elvis just had that in spades. And Buddy Holly was like, I better get my own thing going on. I'm going to, you know, they're telling me I shouldn't wear glasses. I'm going to go the other way and just get the biggest, most obvioso, exaggerated glasses I can find. And I'm going to turn that weakness or perceived weakness into my strength, you know? And then, you know, I'm sure guys like Elvis Costello were like, hey, you know, glasses, cool. And I know that me... Like, again, growing up in the 70s, I saw Buddy Holly, and it was empowering to have a skinny guy with glasses. You know, Woody Allen, before he creeped everybody out, uh, you know, when you looked at Woody Allen, you were like, wow, 
the smart guy with the glasses actually gets the chick in this yes. movie, you know? That yeah. was really, really empowering for me. And it really was. And and I think, obviously, uh, even back then, um, you know, Buddy Holly was trading on different things. Although, uh, if you take the Little Richard Lee Angel story at face value, uh, he also uh, he also had a... Uh, you know, had a, 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 what's the word, a carnal. He, he obviously was in touch with his carnal side um, more than those uh, eight by tens would have had you believe perhaps, but. All right. Last fact. And this actually ties into something we talked about earlier. When asked during a Canadian radio interview in 1957, whether the then new rock and roll music would still be around in six or seven months, buddy replied, I rather doubt it. So even he didn't think what he was doing was as important as it was. Little did he know he was he was laying the ground tracks for it. I honestly think that if Buddy Holly doesn't come during the time that he did and do the songs that he did, looking the way that he did with all those factors, being from Lubbock, being that 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 non-threatening guy, I don't think rock and roll lasts longer than six seven months. You know, you're right and. You know, it's also what was Buddy Holly trending towards, uh, you know, in the later part of his career, which is like kind of mind blowing when you realize Buddy Holly's whole quote unquote career was like 18 months long. <laughs> it's like it's like, wow, I really got to get on the stick and get going. But but he uh, <laughs> I've been doing this for 45 years and I still haven't done a fraction of what that guy did. But but yeah. it's uh, it's pretty amazing. And what he was trending towards at the end was more lush records with strings on them you know yeah. every day it's again to get and uh you know but it still had that buddy holly feel it still had that sound even every day you can tell he's he's feeling around like what's going to be the next thing i think he would have become a producer i think he would have been a uh, you know i think i think he would have been um oh, what's his name the beatles guy the uh, george martin yeah, George Martin. He would have been like a George Martin or a Phil Spector or something like that, where I think he would have just taken other artists and made their records sound amazing and gone, yeah, I don't, I don't need to be jumping around on a stage. You know, I'm uh, uh, I'm 26 years old. I'm an old man. Uh, you know, I, I just think that it, it's unfortunate that we lost him, but it, it's just he's just encapsulated in this moment in time and just changed everything after him by just doing the little bit of work that he did in the few years that he was actually active. And I think it's just incredible. I mean, I'll tell you right now, from this point forward, I'm a, I'm a Buddy Holly fan. I'm so happy that this album hit when it did after the girl groups. And, and also to be able to sit down and talk to you about it because to have a real fan that let loves, loves the album and loves the artist, it's just, it, it's, it makes me a fan even more. This was so much fun, Tom. Thank you so much, buddy, Thank for coming you. on. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Tom Kenny, ladies and gentlemen. Go back on the HBO app. Watch all the episodes of Mr. Show with Bob and David because it's one of the funniest shows you'll ever see in your life. Check out every episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, and they've got a new SpongeBob SquarePants movie coming out in August. So get on that. And if you want to follow Tom because he doesn't have social media, you have to go to his band's page, and that's Tom Kenny and the High Seas. 
now. We just listened to Buddy Holly and the Crickets from 1957. This week, our new music choice is Pokey Lafarge. The 36-year-old musician's been making classic American tunes for the last 15 years. Huge fan of Buddy Holly, Jimmy Rogers, and Bill Monroe. Check out his new album, Rock Bottom Rhapsody. You can find that on Spotify. But check out the track that we put, End of My Rope, on the 500 Podcast website. And if you were in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these artists, send your music, your original music, to the 500 Podcast website, 500podcast at gmail.com. And make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Portishead Week as we take on their 1994 debut album, Dummy. One of my personal favorites. If you've been following my social, you can see that I've been getting excited about this one. I expect every one of you to do your homework because you got some to do. So listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy, wash your cadoodles, and doogle doogle. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Next Chapter Podcasts.